I want to introduce you to a guy named Jim. A guy named Jim. Jim loved boating. He loved taking his boat out, whether it was high tide or low tide. I mean, Jim was a boating fanatic. Uh, he went out one particular day, though, on high tide and, you know, was braving the rocky waves. And while he was out there, he came upon another ship that was out on the waves. He thought this was odd. He was a fanatic, and there's not too many fanatics like that. And so, although his, uh, from his vantage point, it didn't look like there was anybody in the boat. So he got closer, and sure enough, no one was piloting the boat. So he tied up the boat and tugged it back to uh, back to the dock uh, over the jostling waves. And as he arrived, he heard another person yell out, hey, that's my boat. He came up, he started talking to this person, and he, he came to realize that something became very clear that this new boat owner had not properly dropped the anchor. Now this new boat owner said, I definitely dropped the anchor. I know I dropped the anchor. Well, what happened? The owner of the boat had anchored their boat earlier that day, but didn't leave enough line when the tide rolled in. And so when the tide slowly lifted the boat up and up and up, it picked the boat up enough to where the anchor lost its footing. And it slowly drew out to sea from the dock. Wave by wave by wave drew out to sea. And where was the boat owner? We don't know. Well, the biggest concern for the boat was not in that, point, in that moment a giant wave to capsize it or a Category 5 hurricane. No, it was the slow drift away from its owner. Now, the same is true for us. When we stop paying attention to the state of our souls before God, we end up drifting like a boat when the owner has stopped paying attention. We begin relying on our own wisdom, thinking that, Maybe we know best, like the owner believed they knew what they were doing, though they didn't realize the tides changed how much leeway you give the anchor. We are probably more fearful, just as people, as human beings, about big moral failures, a big fall, that capsizing wave, or a hurricane uh, category five. The, the big fall, the shame and the public embarrassment that would, that would come from that, we are more scared of that, but we are less concerned normally than just about a drift, about drifting away. And we're maybe less concerned than we should be, which brings us to our big idea this morning, and that's this. Even when we drift, God pursues drifters with his relentless grace. And calls them back to him. God pursues drifters with his relentless grace and calls them back to him. When we stop paying attention and rely on our own thinking, we end up slowly drifting wave by wave by wave away from where we should. We might even drift without knowing that we're drifting. But when God's grace shows up, he calls us back. He brings us back, and that's what he does with Jacob in our chapters this morning. And so let's dive just into the first point right away this morning. That's this. God's trustworthy character calls us to repentance. God's trustworthy character calls us to repentance. Now, in chapter 34, 
we see Jacob adrift. Where's he at? Why doesn't he care about what's going on in his family? Where's the worship of God in chapter 34? And so Jacob drifted in chapter 34. But here in the first verse of 35, we see God coming to him. We can reasonably assume that Jacob and his family are still in Shechem at this point. God comes to Jacob in verse 1 in a similar way that he actually came to Abraham back in chapter 12. But look there in verse 1 with me. Here it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This episode seems to be immediately following chapter 34. However, there's no time indication given. And actually, the way that God comes and approaches Jacob, it actually seems like Jacob is not doing something right. He's not following orders. And so it's as though, actually, Jacob has become comfortable in Shechem. The idea that maybe Jacob had drifted into comfort. I mean, going after God's gift of comfort in Satan's wicked ways, what we heard about last week. And so he had drifted into comfort in the land of Shechem when he shouldn't have. God comes to him both to remind him of a command that he had given him and to remind him of a promise that he had given to Jacob. God reminds Jacob of the command that he gave him back in Genesis 31, verse 3, where God says, return to the land of your fathers and I will be with you. Shechem isn't the land of his fathers, so he wasn't there yet. He returned to the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. God commands this so that he might fulfill the promise that he actually gave to him even further back in chapter 28, where God tells Jacob at Bethel, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. We'll bring you back to this land. This is made clear that God is referring even back to Bethel in the description of who Jacob is to make the altar for. Notice there at the end of verse 1, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God upholds his promise to Jacob, but prods Jacob in the process with the fact that he has not been faithful to God's command. He has not followed God's command, which is a lesson, maybe the first lesson that we'll learn in our text this morning. And that's this, that sometimes following God's commands brings about fulfillment of God's promises. Let me repeat that. Following God's commands brings about fulfillment of God's promises sometimes. Now, God is not dependent on humans to fulfill his promises. The psalmist reminds us, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Many times he makes promises, though, where blessings are received upon obedience to his commands. This is how he would deal with the nation of Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land after having been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 30, starting at verse 15 and following, he says to them, See, I have set before you today life and good. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, that you shall surely 
perish. Therefore, choose life, that you may dwell in the land the Lord, your, the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. And so here he is prodding them, obey and receive the blessing on the other side of that obedience. You know, Jesus would give a similar uh, message in his proclamations, his first proclamations of the kingdom of God, when he would command all people, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, suggesting that if you repent and believe, that you will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, which is life and goodness. Isn't this same principle true with kids? If you've been a parent, you know, I, for Emily and I, we are consistently reminding our kids that our commands and instructions are for their good. And when parents and teachers give instructions to their kids for their good and they don't obey, they're the ones who lose out on the goodness of the command and the blessing of obedience. For example, I mean, we instruct my son all the time to not lick the bottom of his shoes, <laughs> not to climb on top of a wobbly kid's table, not to run into the middle of the road, or even as simple as tilt your head back as we're washing your hair in the tub. Because you're going to get soap in your eyes if you don't. There, Emily and I know what's on the other side of those instructions. He may not, but we know what's on the other side, whether he obeys or disobeys. There is joy and peace and possibly even life when he chooses to obey our instructions for his good. But there is hurt and turmoil on the other side of disobedience. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've not repented of your sins, turning from them and believing that Jesus can save you through his life, death, and resurrection, then you are missing out. You are missing out on life and joy and peace. Real life and joy and peace. Our world wants to tell you that you can find life and joy and peace if you just search for it and find stuff that you like to do. Find life in anti-aging cosmetics. Find joy in buying whatever you want. Or find joy in giving away everything and go full minimalist. Find peace in more yoga, in more concerts, in more hookups. The world and the enemy wants to deceive you by making you believe deep down that life and joy and peace are not on the other side of obeying God's commands. Yet God knows the deceptions that are crouching at our door. He's patient. He forbears our deceptions. But his command holds true. God commands all people everywhere to repent, as the Apostle Paul would say. And that command is for our good. Life and joy and peace are found in obeying God's commands. How easily we presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Oh, God's trustworthy character calls us to worship him through repentance and faith. Obeying God's commands, recognizing they're for our good, brings his promised life, joy, and peace. 
Obeying God's commands, recognizing therefore our good brings his promised life, joy, and peace. But back to Genesis 35. God tells Jacob to leave Shechem, which isn't the land that God had promised to him, and to Abraham and to Isaac. And so Jacob drags his feet. He enjoyed the comfort that Shechem brought and didn't feel like compromising that comfort, especially since now he believed that the actions of his sons would have made him stink to the inhabitants of the land. He didn't want a dust-up. He didn't want to leave his place of comfort and start trekking down the road where he didn't have defenses. But God tells him to pack up, move, and go dwell in Bethel. God is calling Jacob here to bank on his trustworthy character. Not only does he tell him to pack up and move, but he actually tells him to build an altar. As we saw last week, the events of chapter 34 are darkly tragic. That the worship of God is nowhere to be seen. Yet here we see God calling him back to worship him. He had drifted away from worshiping him, and God is calling him back. That's why at the beginning of every service, there's a simple call to worship. God is the one who initiates by his grace the ability for us to worship in the first place. We would not pursue worshiping God if left to ourselves. And so that's why in our service order, at the very beginning, we want to show you this is what God does even in individual hearts as he gives a call to worship. He gives a call to repent and to believe. And so Jacob here is called to worship him by building an altar. And as Jacob responds to this call to worship, he goes to his family and instructs them to prepare to worship God. And there are three commands that he gives them. These commands are part of this call to worship God. The first one is to put away foreign gods. Second is to purify themselves. And the third is to change their garments. Each of these would have been attempts to prepare to worship God. And they are in line with the repentance that we've already discussed this morning. What we see Jacob doing here is repenting and recommitting himself to obey God's commands to him. I think Jacob recognizes he has drifted. So he ties himself to God's rescue boat, as it were, and commits to trust God's character. Now, you might see drifts like this in your own life. Drifting can be seen in reasonable excuses, quote-unquote reasonable excuses, to miss the public worship gathering of God's people. You may even think to yourself, but Casey, you have no idea how comfortable my bed is. Or you may be dealing with some actual really difficult circumstances in your life that make it really difficult to get out of bed and come to church. Yet, potentially, you even have the energy to do other things, watch movies, meet with friends, do homework. Sure, you can and are supposed to worship God privately. Between you and God, you're supposed to worship him privately. But scripture urges you not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Do not forsake the public meeting of Christians at a local church on Sunday morning. The local church is the gospel made visible. It's the gospel made visible. Others can see the gospel at work as the church gathers and proclaims the message of the gospel. It's made public. 
You might even start to see a drift in your own life by missing a couple services here and there and noticing that you aren't struck dead. You, life seems fine. It's like no, there's nowhere in the Bible that says if you miss a church service, you're going to be struck dead. But like maybe there's a fear and you're like, oh, I, I'm actually okay. I, life actually seems fine. Maybe actually even a little bit better. I got some extra sleep. But beginning to disengage from God's church, his body, disengaging from groups, whether Sunday school or community group, neglecting to meet together might be for you a dashboard warning light there at the front of your dashboard, actually showing that there's bigger issues under the hood. God is calling you back to worship him. And he wants you to see his trustworthy character, that if you will give him one day, he will be faithful with that one day. He is trustworthy. You can trust him with at least one day. Now, with Jacob, Jacob realizes that God has been trustworthy to him. And so he does this whole naming situation where he goes to Luz, which he had already called Bethel, and he renames it El Bethel. That confuse anyone? Make you scratch your head? Let's go ahead and just read verses 6 and 7 and just see what's going on here. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all his people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now with Bethel, meaning the house of God, this new name could literally be translated, El there is the prefix for God, so it could literally be translated God of the house of God. That's kind of interesting. Why is Jacob doing that? Well, Bethel is already where God has shown his presence to Jacob. That's why he calls it the house of God, because God's presence has resided there with Jacob. You reside, your presence normally, the majority of the time, resides in your home. I mean, work, I guess, takes you away as well, but your home is where your center of gravity is. And so this Jacob sees as the center of gravity for God's presence. But Jacob has just gone away for years, decades, potentially even 30 years. And God has led him back, actually fulfilling his promise to Jacob. And so what this is, is God has brought him back to the land and proven that his character is trustworthy. And so Jacob calls it the God of the house of God, meaning that God's character can be trusted, that the God of Bethel has proven himself trustworthy. He can be trusted. God fulfilled his promises to Jacob. Now, it took quite a journey to get there. If we follow Jacob's journey from Paddan Aram, where he was with Laban, and how God is working, we actually notice that God is guiding Jacob, which brings us to our second point this morning. If you're taking notes, God's sovereign guidance calls us to humbly follow. God's sovereign guidance calls us to humbly follow. Now, due to Simeon and Levi's act of vengeance in the last chapter, Jacob, thinking that his reputation 
stank within, stunk within uh, the, the inhabitants of the land. He didn't want to take that trek through the land because he didn't want to dust up any emotions. But God called him to leave anyway. And so look with me in verse 5 to see how God is going to sovereignly guide him and how Jacob humbly follows. Look there with me in verse 5. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Oh, God's sovereignty here speaks of God's power and ability to do as he pleases. He wanted Jacob to make it to Bethel because he had promised to take him there to worship him. And so what did God do? He made sure that Jacob would be safe by afflicting the surrounding people with a terror from God, which is interesting, a terror from God. It's a fear or so of God's people. And this is something that we'll actually see. We're not going to go through the book of Joshua anytime soon, but um, in the book of Joshua, if you read that, you will see that as the inhabitants, as, as the Israelites are entering into the promised land, there is a fear that grips the hearts of the surrounding nations. As Israel comes close, there's even a conversation with Rahab where she says, our hearts melted within us when we heard about what happened at the Red Sea and God splitting that apart. There's a fear that God's power induces. And so God actually comes here and says, I'm going to get you, Jacob, to Bethel. I'm going to, and he put a terror from God on the surrounding people, most likely a suppression of a desire to, to act violently toward Jacob and his family. After making it to Bethel and building an altar there, God appears to Jacob then and blesses him. He shows unbelievable grace. I mean, who is this guy? He didn't deserve any kind of a blessing. Yet God is still blessing him. He shows an unbelievable amount of grace by naming him Israel. Then let your eyes fall down to verse 11 and see what God actually says to Jacob, who he is. He says this, I am God Almighty. Now this is a name for God. This name is El Shaddai. You might have heard this name before. Straightforwardly, uh, the, our English translation gets it really good. God Almighty is a good translation. God affirms to Jacob his sovereignty in giving him this name. Now, if we look at other instances where El Shaddai shows up, we actually see that a broader definition may be given to the name. And Alec Motyer, who wrote this great book, Six Ways the Old Testament Still Speaks Today, uh, helpfully gives an accurate and beautiful definition of El Shaddai when other instances are taken into account. He says this, El Shaddai is the God who is at most powerful when human strength and resources are at their lowest ebb. The God who is at his most powerful when human strength and resources are at their lowest ebb. One of the other times that this name El Shaddai shows up is when God comes to Abram in chapter 17. There, God begins telling a 99-year-old Abram, that he is El Shaddai, promising that by his power, he will provide Abram a son through Sarai. 
even though, humanly speaking, his virility and resources were at their lowest ebb. Abram had given up on Sarah, even. He had created a child with Hagar, Sarai's servant. But El Shaddai shows up to rebuke Abram's attempt to help God out. He doesn't need our help. And then he changes Abram's name to Abraham to reaffirm to him, trust me, I will make you, he says to him, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So God shows up, he says, my name is El Shaddai, and he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Here in our text, God comes and says, I am El Shaddai, and changes Jacob's name to Israel. God's promise here to Jacob is is very is mirrors Abraham's promise as well. God calls on Jacob though to humbly follow him because he is El Shaddai, because he is trustworthy. He is God Almighty. Even though the inhabitants of the land might want to destroy his family, God would protect them. And what we ultimately see happen throughout the course of chapter 35 is that God is actually stripping away those other things that Jacob might have been trusting in for protection, for security, for safety. God begins stripping those things away. God does this so that as Jacob enters into the promised land, into Canaan, that he would be fully depending on God's sovereignty as El Shaddai for security. We see God strip away Jacob's safety nets, and there's four of them that show up, and they show up in a series of burials. So let's glide through. In verse 4 of chapter 35, Jacob takes foreign idols and hides them under a tree. And the language here of putting them under dirt under a tree is actually very similar to burial-type language. And so Jacob here actually takes these foreign idols and buries them under a tree. These foreign idols were probably the idols that Rachel stole from her dad, and Jacob didn't know about them as he was leaving Laban, but sometime between then and now, he found out about them. Yet they're not rid of yet. God comes to him, and Jacob says, oh, we got to get rid of these. These foreign idols might have actually been a safety net of sorts, just in case the God of Abraham and Isaac didn't come through, didn't provide the expected protection at the proper time. They could also pray to these idols. So Jacob buries these idols because God has come to them and starts stripping away this, at least for him, a perceived layer of security. Then in verse 8, we see a second burial. Deborah, whose name had not yet appeared in the Bible, dies. She's Rebecca's nurse, which we can actually find a description of a nurse of Rebecca as she's leaving Laban to marry Isaac. You could find that in Genesis 24, 59 if you wanted to go and, and look there, but it describes that Rebecca, Rebecca leaves with a nurse. And remember that Jacob, before leaving home to flee from Esau, he was a homebody. He was a mama's boy who was probably very familiar with his mother's nurse. She probably was a trusted advisor to him and would have provided a sense of security for Jacob. After Bethel, Rachel has hard labor while giving birth to Jacob's final son. And after giving birth, Jacob loses the wife that he delighted in. 
who his soul felt safest with. He buries Rachel. Then in the fourth instance, a final person would be buried. Jacob would bury his father, Isaac. Isaac, the one who had blessed Jacob and given him his inheritance, he breathed his last. Would would Esau seize the birthright now that their father is gone? Well, Well, we'll see that he doesn't do that, but Jacob's final safety net was gone. Who would he trust in for safety now? In these burials, we see God stripping away the safety nets that might have hindered Jacob's faith as he went to live in Canaan. God had sovereignly guided Jacob all the way to Mamre. Not only had God's promises mirrored Abraham's, but Jacob's journey from Paddan Aram to Shechem to Bethel, and then here in verse 27 to Mamre actually mirrors Abraham's journey in chapters 12 and 13. I'd encourage you to even go read that. Jacob goes from Paddan Aram to Shechem to Bethel and to Mamre. And this is what we learn from that, from those similarities, that Jacob's journey was not happenstance. That as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their story began with a journey with Abraham going from Paddan Aram to Shechem to Bethel to Mamre, the Oaks at Mamre. Now the story of the patriarchs in Jacob is being brought to a close. Jacob's life will no longer be the focus of the rest of the book of Genesis. His life kind of becomes a, he becomes a, uh, a second-hand uh, character in the stories. And so we see here in this non-happenstance uh, journey that God is actively guiding him along the way to show that God has committed himself to Jacob. God's sovereign, God's sovereign guidance called Jacob to humbly follow him. And God's sovereign guidance calls us to follow him too. When we submit our lives to following Jesus, we view every step, we must view every step along the way as an opportunity to humbly follow his guidance. Yet, we drift in our following of God's sovereign guidance. I wonder what that drift looks like for you. Maybe you're just not acknowledging his guiding hand in your life as you ought. Maybe you take too much credit for your successes. Maybe you take too much blame for your failures. I want you to try this this week. I want you to do something called observing yourself. It's kind of interesting. Observe what your tendencies are. If and when or or when you've gone a couple days without spending time with Jesus in his word, I want you to observe what is it that you drift towards. What are you drifting from and what are you drifting towards? Maybe it's addiction or worry. Maybe it's fits of anger or envy or drunkenness. How quickly are you able to recognize the drift and seek to, by God's grace, actually come back to dock? Remember the old children's song, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little eyes, little feet, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above is looking down in love. 
the careful little eyes which you see. God's sovereign guidance is calling Jacob that when he drifts to come back, it's calling him back to humbly follow El Shaddai. Will you allow God's relentless grace to bring you back? After Jacob buries his father at the end of chapter 35, the focus on Jacob's tragic life in the book of Genesis, like we've already mentioned, comes to a close. After drifting, God pursues him with his relentless grace and includes Jacob in his kingdom. You know what that should do for us? After all of the mess-ups and the times and lack of faith in Jacob's life, God relentlessly pursuing him with grace and including him in his kingdom, that should give the rest of us scoundrels a lot of hope. That should give us so much hope. A life that no matter how tragedy-filled it is, is never out of reach for God's relentless grace. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, that God's kingdom of goodness calls us to persevere in hope. God's kingdom of goodness calls us to persevere in hope. This brings us to a theme that's been mounting in the book of Genesis and is a theme that actually is carried on through the rest of the Bible, throughout the rest of uh, redemptive history. And it's the theme of kingdom. Now, you don't miss something in our text. The word kingdom doesn't show up at all. But the pattern of God's kingdom certainly shows up. And what is this pattern of kingdom? Well, it's this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Pastor Justin has mentioned this before. This is a simple pattern of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we see that all throughout chapter 35. God's people are those who he has entered into covenant with. It's obviously Jacob, Israel, and his kids. God's place for Israel was the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob for their families. And God's rule is either embodied in his law or by a representative king. So what do we find in chapter 35? That Jacob and his 12 sons are God's people, that they are in the land of Canaan, in God's place, and that they are worshiping God through sacrifice under God's rule. And what's interesting is that where God reaffirms his covenant with Jacob, he also promises that kings shall come from your own body. This direct promise would be fulfilled in the line of one of his sons. But the question that this chapter actually leaves us asking is which one of the sons is worthy to be the line of the kings? The last chapter, Simeon and Levi took it upon themselves to enact quick and violent vengeance, which delegitimized them from a kingly line. Then here in chapter 35, we read in verse 22 of a wicked thing that Reuben does, Jacob's firstborn son. This is what he did against his father there in verse 22. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Reuben's disrespectful actions delegitimized him from any claim to a kingly line because he seized rather than sacrificed. And that's what a godly king does. They sacrifice. They don't seize. And that's what these first three borns of Jacob did 
But that leaves us with the fourth-born son. Whose name do we find in verse 23? We see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Through Judah, the kingly line would continue. And though Judah wouldn't have a spotless record, he would prove himself noble. For the most part, he would be fairly spotless. But there's no spotless people in the Bible except for Jesus. And he would be promised to be the father of a kingly line in chapter 49. From him would come the greatest kings that Israel ever ever saw, King David and King Solomon. And from him would come the king of kings. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have one more whole chapter to touch on, which we'll touch on quickly. I think the point of what this chapter uh, that we're going to summarize can be answered in one simp- after answering one simple question, that's this. Why did God include this in the Bible? Esau wasn't the promised uh, seed of the woman. He wasn't going to have the Redeemer come from him. He wasn't going to have any great land promises in the land of Canaan as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Why are Esau's, why is his genealogy here? It's interesting, in another place, after Abraham dies, Ishmael's genealogy is recorded. And here, after Isaac's death, Esau's genealogy is recorded. Which, I think, brings us to these two answers to that question. Why did God include this in the Bible? First, God keeps his promise to bless Esau. You can find that in Genesis 27, as Jacob steals the blessing from Isaac, or from, from, yes, with Isaac, from Esau, Esau goes in and says, Dad, you've got to have some kind of blessing for me. And he gives him kind of a, a blessing curse. The writer of Hebrews calls it a blessing. So it seems like there was good intent in it. And so we see here God keeping his promise through Isaac to Esau that he would live off the fat of the land and other promises. So that's the first answer, is that God keeps his promise to bless Esau. The second answer that I would give you is this. Esau's kingdom would be a rival kingdom, would rival God's kingdom. Esau gets in a similar situation then in our text where Abraham and Lot, they were kind of like, okay, we've got a lot of flocks and herds and people, and we need to split up. He gets in that same situation here with Isaac and decides to pack up his belongings and leave the land of Canaan. He went, says in our text, went into a land away from his brother Jacob. And in going away from the land, Jacob moves his family away from God's presence. One commentator has even said, when Esau left the land, he walked out of the record of saving history. He rejected any opportunity for redemption. Now compared to Jacob's kingdom, which is his 12 sons, Esau's extensive genealogy of chiefs and kings dwarfs that of his brothers. Yet the important question is, where were Jacob and his sons dwelling? Where are they? Look at the first verse with me of chapter 37. Going one verse ahead. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings 
in the land of Canaan. While Esau left to go build his massive, impressive empire, Jacob was attempting to live in submission to God. He was living in submission to the kingdom of God, which tells us the truth that Jacob found out in this passage. And it's this, that other kingdoms may seem impressive, but where you want to be is in the land of Canaan. And the fact that it took Jacob such a roundabout way to get here should fill us with hope that we too can persevere. Well, Israel, Jacob's descendants persevered in, uh, in hope for a really long time before they would ever finally receive the king that they were waiting on. But a few thousand years later, after Jacob received God's covenant, a king did come to earth. The king would bring his upside-down kingdom of where he would uh, rule through service. He would conquer through his own death, and he would ride on a baby donkey. And his people would praise him on his way in on this baby donkey, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Well, this king, Jesus was his name, would be a son of Jacob. He would come from Jacob. He would also be a son of Judah. And he also was the son of God. Yet within a week of people throwing palm branches down before this baby donkey, they would reject him. Within a week. And why? Well, his kingdom didn't look like Esau's kingdom. Impressive and dominating. His kingdom wasn't going to be a kingdom of kings. It's going to be a kingdom of priests. His kingdom would snub the world's wisdom, power, and intelligence because his kingdom would be one of genuine goodness, of righteousness. A king with 12 followers doesn't seem all too impressive. But when that kingdom is God's kingdom of righteousness of goodness. That's where you want to be. Like Jacob wanted to be in the land of Canaan, you want to be in that kingdom of goodness, following Jesus. Though he was praised as the king of Israel, in that verse I just read, Jesus would be a king for a company of nations. Like Jacob was promised that from him would come a nation and a company of nations. So one nation and many. Jesus would bring the promise of salvation, of redemption to the world. Let me ask you a couple questions. Are you living in submission to Jesus? The king who rode into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, the king who rode in and palm branches were laid before him. If you are, have you began to drift at all, seeing the treasures of Esau's kingdom as more impressive and attractive than God's kingdom through Jesus? Have you drifted away from Jesus? Maybe at one point in your life you would have considered yourself a Christian, but now who knows? You don't even know. Maybe some of you have really trusted in Jesus, and there, but there's an area or two of sin in your life that you turn a blind eye to. That will cause you to drift and maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time and you've gotten to a certain point in your walk of faith and you've just stopped. 
You just stalled, pursuing a growing relationship with Jesus. No major failure, but you're just drifting. We're going to sing here in a little bit a song called Living Hope. And maybe what you need to do is just savor the second verse of that song. It goes something like this. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Can I encourage you this morning? If you're drifting, come back. Seek God's relentless grace. He's pursuing. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God is pursuing you with his relentless grace to bring you back to him. And God's trustworthy character, his sovereign guidance, and his kingdom of goodness is calling you to repent, to follow humbly, and to persevere in hope. Will you be brought back to the dock this morning? Or will you continue to drift? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you so much for Jesus. That 2,000 years ago, riding in on a donkey, welcomed, lauded, praised by all of those around because they thought that he was going to establish an Esau-like kingdom. But he didn't. He didn't. He came and established a kingdom where the way up is the way down. The way to be exalted is the way of humility. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for yourself hum humbling yourself and coming down and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You took our shame and you took the sin of all of those who would repent and believe and turn to you. So Lord, if there are any who are drifting in here this morning, would you pursue them, call them back? Would they see themselves as being pursued? And would they respond with repentance, with following humbly, and with persevering in hope? I ask all this in Christ's name, amen.